As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. All right, all right. Welcome back, or welcome to Way Back Wednesday. Joining me as he has for the better part of three months now, it is um, National Dragster Senior Editor Kevin McKenna. We're going to do something a little bit different on today's show. I am super excited. I've been looking forward to this for several months. Um, we're, we're going to rehash the Moroso Five Day, like the 30-plus year history of, I think, arguably the, the most prestigious event in, in bracket racing history. Kevin, before we get there, this is an exciting time, right? Like, you, you got to work, number one. And yeah. And and we've got real racing in your backyard this weekend. We we, we do. We, we've got two national events back to back here in Indy, and and how about this? Last week, we paid out more than a million dollars at a bracket race. Yes. And, yes. And, and 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 wasn't that? I mean, we we can obviously go into that at a later date, but wasn't that an amazing thing to see a guy, not not just win what we believe is four hundred thousand dollars on Saturday night, but to come back the following day and and win again um certainly not the first guy to win back-to-back races but if but if you ever wanted in your life to win back-to-back <laughs> events i think you would probably pick those two no question just from a financial standpoint obviously and from a from a prestige the feel of the whole world watching i mean we'll get deeper into to see cisco's performance and really just Kudos all around for Cal Riley, AJ Ash, that SFG promotion staff. They did what a, a lot of people said could not be done, and I yeah, think pulled it sure. off in, in, in an epic manner. I, I've got nothing but praise for that event. Um, Jed and I will touch on that on the, on the regular podcast episode this week. Steve Sisko is actually coming on. He's going to join us as the guest interview. So we'll hit, do our best to hit everything, anything and everything SFG 1.1 related and, and I think it's going to be one of our longer episodes because there's a lot to cover. But uh, yeah, I agree. Super exciting. And to your point on the on the NHRA front, uh, we're back with professional ranks at Indy this week. Yeah, yeah. But now l- let's go back because if you didn't, you could probably argue successfully that if you didn't have a Moroso five day mm. in 1982, you might not have a million dollar race in 2020. Um, and, and that is the whole purpose of why we're here today. To, to, to really honor what is, I don't know, you said it was arguably the most prestigious event. I would think it would be a pretty thin argument to, to suggest that anything else is, you know, really for anyone that, that's grown up around the sport in the last uh, 20, 30, 40 years, Moroso remains the, uh, um, the signature event for, 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 for bracket racing and uh, anyone who was there during its prime, I think the memories are timeless and uh, we're going to delve into a few of them today. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I feel like Moroso in its prime, I personally was probably a generation removed. Like I, I didn't attend my first Moroso five day until 2003. 
when it was it was still moroso right but it was it was beginning to not necessarily fade out but it, it probably wasn't quite in the heyday and it still had this amazing aura and mystique about it like it was special to be there mainly because i had read and heard about it all my life right mm -hmm. and i think what's interesting when you look back and categorize the moroso five day as the most prestigious event in in the history of bracket racing is that it wasn't the first big dollar bracket race no. it, i don't think in any year was the richest big you know big dollar bracket race on the calendar mm -hmm. and yet for years for decades it was and now we can look back and probably say has been the most prestigious bracket event of all time yeah yeah and and uh, to, to, to that point, I think what you have to do is go back a little bit and look at the landscape of bracket racing in the late 70s, early 80s. You know, we know that Byron Dragway was more or less ground zero for big money bracket racing. You know, in the 70s, they were having five and $10,000 to win races. By 1982, that had started to expand a little bit to other markets. There were a few places on the East Coast that had some. You had, that, 82 was the first year of the $20,000 race in Michigan, which, which I think that was kind of a landmark event where people looked at that as, a, as an, oh my God, sum of money. Um, we know that George Rupert doubled up at that event, won, you know, probably, you know, a Steve Sisko-like performance mm -hmm. to, to, to win both the warm-up event and the main event. Um, you know, and I guess if you compare $1982 to $2020, maybe there's a little there, but I still don't think, you know, it probably wasn't completely life-changing money for, for George to win, I believe, $23,000 in 1982 as opposed to 450000 or so, but, um, but you get the point. Um, sure. So anyway, to, to, to that end, at the end of 1981, Dick Moroso, who everyone knew as a, a king in the aftermarket performance parts business, he buys Palm Beach Dragway and begins uh, a very healthy renovation program. Uh, I think he's looking for some signature events. And he joins forces with Ron Leak from Byron, and they come up with this plan to have, in November, the week before Thanksgiving, a five-day bracket championship. Very simple format. Five days, 5000 to win each day, $100 entry fee. You know, at that point, no such thing as buybacks, no double entries, no nothing. One driver, one car, one shot, five grand to win. And uh, obviously, from day one, it resonated well with the racers. Uh, it started out successfully and just exploded from there. Anyone, I never realized in the history of the, the five day that originally Ron Leak was a partner. Like, as you mentioned, Ron Leak, Byron Dragway. For one year, but yeah. For one year, okay. So, because as you mentioned, uh, I think most of the way that I, I am told the history, like the origins of, the true origins of big dollar bracket racing mm -hmm. root back to Byron, correct? Yes, yes. Is that your yeah. understanding as well? Yeah. Uh, it is, and, and Ron Leak had, I believe it was, you know, for most of the late 70s, two, two signature events, the Cash Nationals, I don't remember what the other one was called. So but, but Olympics it, of, of drag racing? Yeah, uh, was no, that, that, was, that, that was Union Grove, and that was more of a circus thing. As far as bracket racing, okay. you know, I think seasonally there were two big events at Byron, and, you know, again, there were other markets doing it, but really those were the ones you'd read about in Superstock Magazine, uh, and kind of, you know, some, some of the early pioneers, you know, guys, you know, the folk family being from that area. And, you know, I know Johnny Labuse went up there and won one year, you know, it was really a place that kind of, uh, cemented the reputation for big money bracket racing. And I think it was natural for other promoters to look and say, well, if it works here, why wouldn't it work in other markets? And, and actually it was, um, it wasn't totally foreign to, uh, to, to Florida because, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, you had the Snowbird Nationals at Bradenton, and it had four days of big money racing in there. Um, not sure if originally they ran for five grand, but they did that. You know, there was a year Miami Hollywood Speedway down there had a, a couple of big money races. So it wasn't, but, but it just worked perfectly where you knew that in November, most of the tracks in the country were closed. People are looking for a reason to travel. Why not give them one? And, and, and it just happened to be the perfect storm when Dick Moroso bought this track, made it a nice facility, and decided to have really a, a signature event. And, you know, my recollection is of the first year, you know, 220 to 230 cars, not a huge, huge event, 
but certainly successful enough for it to continue. And I think what happened was the people that went there had so much fun. They enjoyed it so much that said, we got to go back every year. They told all their friends and it snowballed from there. Um, you know, the other thing you have to remember a little bit about the format, you know, the first year it ran uh, Friday through Tuesday. Um, and on the weekdays, I don't believe they opened the gates till four in the afternoon. So if you were down there with the family, you could go to the beach, you could go to the mall, you, you could go to your favorite restaurant for lunch. So there were a lot of extracurricular activities that, you know, you could make it a family vacation. You could go down there and get crazy with the boys. You didn't have to be up at eight in the morning if you wanted to tie one on, which some people did. You know, you had the ability to do all, all that stuff. So that was kind of the culture down there at the time. Yeah, and, and it, it quickly became this thing where it was just an annual migration of sorts. Like the, it, anyone from anywhere seemingly in the world of bracket racing converged on the East coast of Florida in November. I mean, it's a perfect storm. It's, it's beautiful weather at a time of year where there's not typically beautiful weather. It's yes. a big event and, and it became a social gathering. And, and I think the takeaway more than anything was the stories that I've heard from it, the fun that was had, Mm -hmm. And just the idea that winning that event meant that even if it was just for one day, you were the best of the best. Like it was literally a collection of the who's who of, of sports and drag racing. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. And uh, it, it's funny, I'll, I'll even share a story, you know, uh, year one, um, the, the, the winners as they are, a uh, guy named Bud Champ from Minnesota won the first one. Uh, Jim Carlton, who, who went on to actually briefly race even in pro stock, he won the Gator Nationals. He was the day two winner. Terry Sinke, veteran bracket guy from Maryland, day three. Eddie Hall, who at the time, kid from Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, won on Monday. Uh, then Tuesday, Mark Denenbaum from Pennsylvania. Uh, I had a chance to talk to Eddie Hall about an hour ago. I wanted his recollections of that. And uh, his take really is kind of the essence of why that event worked. Here's... Uh, by his own admission, a 20-something-year-old kid who had never won more than $1,000, uh, he went down as a fan in 81 just to watch the Bradenton race and then uh, watch one of the local guys win and said, you know, if he can do it, why can't I? So him and a couple of his buddies went down the following year. Um, he told me he figured the budget for the week would probably have been about 1800 to 2000 Said he went down there with $800 in his pocket to, to travel with, with his you know, I'm sure it was an open trailer, 69 Camaro pickup truck from Michigan to Florida and back. Uh, he had probably just enough money to get there, and he figured he would worry about getting home later. Uh, he sounds familiar. Yeah, it, I like this guy already. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, think, I think everybody has a story like this. Um, and he, didn't, he wasn't even there for the full event. said so he had to work on Friday to get his paycheck, goes down there, enters Monday's race, and... Uh, miraculously wins it, uh, beats Tim Butler in the semis, uh, another Maryland guy, Fred Fry, red lights in the final. Um, and all of a sudden, Eddie Hall, who'd never won $1,000 or more in his life, is $5,000 richer. And he's down there in South Florida with his buddies, and he's got a pocket full of cash. Um, and a couple of the funny stories he told, you know, he, he was at Michigan earlier that year to watch George Rupert double. And he said the, the one thing that impressed him was George had just come off of, I think, 23 straight rounds, wins $20,000, and gets out of his car, puts his fire jacket on the seat, shuts the door, and you wouldn't, by his demeanor, you wouldn't have known whether it was a time trial or not. And, and Eddie said, when I turned on the wind light in the final, I said to myself, I'm going to be like George Rupert. I'm going to get out of my car, and I'm going to treat this like, hey, I do this all the time. And he said, of course, he says, I wanted to act like George, but I didn't. He says, I was more like Rocky. I wanted to jump up and down on the roof of my car and you know, <laughs> throw my arms in the air. And he didn't. But, uh, you know, he, you know, even win or not, Eddie was a guy who immediately got the essence of that event and made it, uh, you know, an, I'll, as long as I'm alive and can do this, I'll never miss another one. So for the next 25 to 30 years, um, he, he was a staple of that event. And, you know, and, and there's a lot of stories like that. Um, the, the other interesting one, uh, Eddie said he didn't even have, come Tuesday, he didn't even have $100 left to, uh, to enter the Tuesday event. So he had to ask Dick Moroso, is there any place around here that will cash a check for a kid from Michigan 
so that I can enter. And uh, obviously he was able to get the funds needed to, <laughs> to race the following day. But, but that does kind of show you some of the, uh, you know, s- sort of the thin margin some of these guys operate on. Sure. Then some of that has, has not changed in, in 40 years. <laughs> no, no, no. I, we, we, know, we know people that, uh, that, that do that. It, you know, and, and, and again, b- back to the culture of that event, um, you have to kind of look at, uh, you know, uh, a few things. Uh, nobody traveled in a motorhome back then. Uh, you know, it was pickup trucks, uh, box trucks. And as a result, nobody camped at the track. Uh, it was really almost unheard of. One of the things that made Moroso special was Dick Moroso had worked a deal out with the local Holiday Inn to get a racer rate. This was a very nice hotel, not far from a PGA golf course. And I think it was about 40 to $45 a night. It was dirt cheap, even for 1982 standards. So basically the racers took over this hotel. Nice bar, nightclub, restaurant, and you could kind of imagine a little bit the mayhem that would ensue when you've got a 250 room hotel that is nothing but bracket racers and, you know, things that happen when, you know, you do get quite a bit of rain down there. You get some delays. Uh, some of the stories that, that came out of that, you know, cause you really, that, that was a place you had to stay. If you were going to Moroso, you stayed at that hotel. Or even if you didn't, you went there for dinner or to have a few drinks and just observe the mayhem. And, and I think that is kind of is, is much a part of the legacy as, uh, you know, as the things that happened uh, on track. Without question, I know when uh, when Danny Bastianelli was on with us, he shared some of the some of the PGA Holiday Inn stories that uh, I don't know. A lot of the stories that I've heard involved Bastianelli, so maybe he's not the guy to, to necessarily narrate those. <laughs> uh, well, I, I would imagine the statute of limitations has long passed on a lot of these things. <laughs> So it's fine. And, and I got to ask, did he tell, I'm sure he told the manager in the pool story. No, I don't, uh, I don't believe so. Well, now, okay, now we're hooked and I have to tell it. Let's go. Uh, let's go. It, it was, uh, I believe it was 1986. Uh, the last day gets rained out and it was a situation where the points, a guy named Jack Balcom from Cincinnati had a monstrous lead in the points. So he, he wasn't going to be caught. It was the last day of the event uh, on a Tuesday. Well, now all of a sudden you're not racing Tuesday. Wednesday is a travel day to Bradenton because the snowbirds didn't start till Thursday. So you have two full days of racers that aren't racing. And I've said- That's never a good combination. There there is nothing more dangerous. (laughs) There's nothing more dangerous than racers that aren't racing. Um, And of course, they're all packed into this Holiday Inn. And I I mean, I remember it well. We wake up in the morning and it was actually the front desk at the Holiday Inn. They announced to the hotel, Moroso Racers, your event has been postponed for today. The track will be open if you want to get your trailers. The points are done. You can pick up your checks at the office, but basically we're done. So by 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, the drinks are flowing, the pool's full. Um, you know, I mean, I remember going, I think we went bowling that day. We did that, but came back that night and the bar was just absolutely rocking. And uh, it actually rocked to the point where the bartenders shut it down early because they felt it was getting out of control the party moved out to the pool area. It's not long before Danny and Randy Folk are wrestling. They end up in the pool. Um, the night manager comes out and he's, a, I remember him being a little short guy, suit and tie. And instead of just, you know, there's, there's several ways to deescalate a situation. I'm sure he could have just said, look guys, I don't care if you're out here as long as you're not bothering the other guests, but he decided to take the opposite approach and got into the finger pointing you racers, you know, you destroy it for everyone else. And, um, Danny and Randy only took so much of that. And then it was a full flush forearm to the chest that sent this guy head over heels into the deep end of the pool. And now he was smart enough not to escalate the situation when he came out, um, instead of probably getting his ass beat, which is what was likely to happen. He just went inside and I remember him saying like, that's it, you guys are done. And it wasn't five minutes later, you could look out and see the police cars coming. So everybody scattered. Uh, I, remember go, I remember going to my room, which was up a balcony that overlooked the pool, um, kind of watching down there. And uh, it, it was probably 10 or 15 minutes later, there's a knock at the door and I look, and here's two Palm Beach cops with this guy who is still drenched. And he looks at me and says, nope, that's not one of them. And, 
they moved on. <laughs> to the next, they moved on to the next room, um, and then I remember that the, the next morning, actually, um, Lex Dudas, the late Division Two director, was was running that event. Uh, I remember seeing him at breakfast the next morning, and one of these, come here, you know, and I said about what, no, and he heard the story and. Uh, he was upset, not from the point of the manager getting dunked. He was just concerned about taking a really good room deal and 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 it being, you know, figured figured that it would be the last year we'd be welcome there, which it wasn't. Um, but uh, but yeah, that, that's just one of many stories about when you gather a bunch of racers in a small group and they have you know the whole idle hands devil's workshop thing, uh, you know, <laughs> and there were things like that that you know it, it wasn't 24 hours later everybody in the place knew that story whether you were there or not. Sure, sure. They say how uh, how things escalated and spread, you know, in a in a time long before social media. It it didn't take long for word to get out. It's stories like you that know, are and, and, legendary. Yeah, and, and you could and you could imagine if there were social media, there would be video of that to this day. Oh God! Uh, and, and, it, <laughs> it, and, and it might it might well have been used in a court of law at some point as evidence. You don't know. But, um, but, but you know, and, and again, th- th- those not that that sort of craziness doesn't happen at, at other events. You know, I, I see some of the kids today that. You know they've got a little bit of that mischief to them, but um, but you know from from my childhood, those are the things I remember as the oh my god moments of like oh geez we're gonna be lucky if we don't all end up in jail. When when was your first Morosa? Uh, I actually went in 1982. Uh, I didn't go for every day, but um, went down there with a couple friends for I think the weekend. Um, you know I was still in high school at the time, so. Uh, I don't remember whether we were out of high school, you know, out of class at that time, but I was also working a part-time job uh, at a car wash of all places. So I think we probably went down there Friday night, came back Sunday. So uh, I was actually lucky for the first, I think, 25 years or so. I, I never missed a, an event. And I think after the first year, I never missed a day. Um, wow. you know, ultimately, when I started writing and taking photographs, you know, I worked for the track, worked for National Dragster, covered the event. Um, but you know, again, it, it didn't take much, you know, as a, as a 16, 17 year old kid, that time of year was magical because not only did you have the big bracket races, but you had a national open event in Orlando, uh, the, you know, the Snowbird Nationals, which is a big deal. And then Dick Moroso came back with the Citrus Nationals. So you had three events that had pro stock cars, alcohol cars, mm-hmm. you know, class racing. Um, so really, if, if you were a kid growing up in Florida, that was your time of the year to absolutely get your drag racing fixed. You know, you, you couldn't possibly take enough time off work or school to, to absorb it all. But uh, yeah, it, it was a uh, uh, magical times. And, you know, again, that, that event uh, in its early days, it, it, it grew, um, you know, a couple other interesting things that have kind of been lost. Uh, it started out as, you know, as we discussed five days, 5,000 win each day. The first year there were no points. But it was so successful that Dick Moroso said, well, why don't we just do a point system? And the second year, what he decided to do was, um, that was the debut of the third generation Camaro and Moroso Performance had built one that had all these trick parts, you know, all the parts they would engineer for the new Camaro, whether it was suspension components or engine stuff, they built this amazing car that, you know, it was a star at the SEMA show. And Moroso said, I'm going to give that away to the points winner. So, so, oh, wow. you, so you went from having no points fund to, to this really, really cool car that was on display all week. Everybody wanted it. Um, and uh, it, it went to whoever essentially won the most rounds or scored the most points. And uh, that was in 83. That was the, the points battle. And, and, and that year, a local guy named Craig Spell, um, who you know, was not a guy who was familiar in, in the, uh, the big money bracket racing circles, he won two of the days and ended up winning the, the Camaro and uh, I, it's been a number of years but I think as of about 10 years ago I'd heard he still has it uh, I don't know that the car's ever changed hands it would be interesting to track that down and see if somebody knows him uh, I'd love to see a picture of the car today you know all these years later almost 40 years later if it still uh, um, you know still exists and, and if it's still around um, but I also remember that year the, the points battle got really heated you know towards the last latter days um some of the guys that were still in contention i think you know craig spell was followed to the staging lanes by mm-hmm. some of the day's best bracket racing hitters it was like we got to get this guy out of here quickly 
but um, <laughs> but 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 he did hold on to to you know again winning two days of that event is really amazing. Um, I know he won the first day and the fourth day. Uh, in between another local guy, Ernie McDaniel, which was a a nine second Nova with a Linko, uh, basically a, a clutch super wow. gas car. Um, cool. One, one day two, Tim Butler won uh, day three, which you know that was. You know, by then, Tim's reputation as being one of the best was already there. But when you win a day at Moroso, it already cements it. Uh, and then uh, an Illinois guy, Tim DeCook, won the final day uh, when the points were uh, were all done. Um, you know, again, back in those days, almost no dragsters. It was really Tim Butler that kind of started the dragster revolution. He had the, the dragster with the funny big tires so you could cut a light. Um, you know, there were no delay boxes in the early years. It was all foot brake stuff. And... You know, if you could go down there and have a 40 light and be anywhere within two or three of your dial, you, you, you had a fighting chance. Um, it makes perfect sense in retrospect, Kevin, as to how and why the points championship at Moroso became such a prestigious thing. I mean, for, I always just assumed it was the fact that, like we talked about earlier, you've got this convergence of three, four hundred of literally the best racers from all over the country and come out on top over five days is a really special thing. And it is, but obviously Dick Moroso played a big hand in setting the tone for that championship. You know, obviously the, the, the overall prize, I don't think again, ever touched what it was in 1983, but that right. set the precedent, right? Sure. Sure. It did. And, and, and Dick had, you know, I mean, I mean, here was a guy who was revered in, in the automotive aftermarket. I mean, he, he was, you know, long before he bought the drag strip, he was a guy who was legendary. You know, I mean, he had been a racer in, in the 60s and 70s, but built this multi-million dollar international brand, and he had a soft spot for the bracket racers. And one of the things that Dick enjoyed the most was to see a guy, someone like an Eddie Hall, who worked all year at a regular job, came down there, whether it was with his buddies or if you were a family guy, you know, maybe a guy who was a steel worker from, from Illinois or something, who would come down and win a day like to hand that guy five grand was fantastic and dick always said the perfect event for him was if you had five different winners each day and then a sixth guy win the points just to kind of spread the wealth around and he really dug that and and, and dick was a, a, a big part of the event he was there almost every day usually there every night to congratulate the winners present them with the check and after day five uh he always had this big champagne party and it usually got out of hand and, you know, usually the guy at the center of the mayhem was Dick Moroso. You know, he, he, he was the wealthy guy who was still a regular guy. Um, and, and I mean, it was amazing. He, he was generous to the point. Uh, I know on, on a couple occasions we got invited to his house, which was on Singer Island. I mean, this is the kind of place where, you know, today a guy like Tiger Woods lives there. Um, and we went out on Dick's boat a couple times and it was this 80 foot, double throw down fishing boat that uh, it was actually the fastest boat in its class in the world. Um, this thing for being as big as it was, it was, I think a 60 mile an hour boat, but you would just say, you know, be at my house at nine o'clock in the morning, we'll go cruise till three and then you can go to the racetrack and we'd go out, we'd go fishing. We'd, and, and he, you know, he was happy just to take a bunch of bracket racers and, you know, treat them just, just like, you know, he, he was not any better than anyone else. And, and that was, a lot of what resonated with the racers that here's this guy who actually cares about us and, and, and treats us like equals. Um, it was really a phenomenal environment. Yeah, no, that's the stuff of legend. And that's really where I want to go next, Kevin. Like we could go through and, and I know that you've got all of the, the history, all of the data, like we could go through and list off all the winners for you know, 25, 30 years. I'm more interested from your perspective as someone that was there for 25 consecutive years of, this the most prestigious bracket race in the world. What are some of your fondest memories? Like, what are some of the things that just stand out to you, whether it's on track or off? You know, I mean, on track, it, it was interesting to see, you know, so, some of the points battles. Um, you know, there was a year, uh, 1993, maybe. It was kind of Kenny Underwood's coming out party. You know, Kenny had had some success, but he was a kid from Tampa. Shows up and, and it was actually, um, I want to say it was the 10th anniversary, so I guess it would have been 93 that Moroso decided to do something special. And in typical Dick Moroso fashion, he went overboard. He had these beautiful, tall, probably seven foot grandfather clocks made, and, and he had six of them done 
one for each of the five days winners and one for the overall champion. Never in his wildest dreams did he think that Kenny Underwood was going to take home three of them. <laughs> you know, Kenny pretty much ran roughshod over the field, wins two of the days, win, crushes the overall points. And, uh, you know, there is a photo somewhere of Kenny with these three wonderful grandfather clocks, um, which, uh, you know, just uh, as far as on-track performances, you had things like that. You know, I remember some unexpected winners. You know, I, I think we talked recently about uh, Harold Stout, you know, a guy who's known really as a car owner and a businessman. Well, Harold Stout went down there one day driving a Nova with the help of David Rampey, wins a day. You know, th th there were some, there was always room for un unexpected. Um, one of the stories I was going to tell from the early years, in the first couple of years before the event really exploded, um, Moroso also decided to have a sportsman eliminator. And it paid $1,000 a day. And it was basically, you know, you had basically a super pro and a sportsman. And, and I think that the time break might have been $12.99 and slower, $11.99 and slower. It was, um, and that was a time when Tim Butler and his Firebird were pretty much destroying the competition all over Florida. Um, so Tim went down there the first couple of years, pocketed an easy couple thousand by winning it. And by the second year or third, I think Randy Folk had decided he'd had enough of this. So I remember Randy finding like a 68 Camaro, putting it together as just a, a cheapy bracket car. And the car was refrigerator white. And, you know, this was at the time the, the Ghostbusters movie was around. Well, he called it the Butler Buster. And it had Butler Buster on the side with the circle with the slash. And that car was built specifically to go down there and show Tim Butler that you were not going to be you know, it was not going to be as easy. And uh, so you had a bunch of guys with rent cars where they'd unhook their pickup truck and, and go run the sportsman eliminator. Oh, and, wow. Right. You know, and, and, and again, it, eventually the event got so big, but by the late eighties, it had exploded to the point where it was almost unmanageable. Mm -hmm. uh, the car count, you know, even with single entry and everything, you know, once you get to 400 and when you consider the, you know, the possibility of rain and delays, you know, you, you'd be racing late into the night, but, um, yeah, and keep in mind, this is a quarter mile race that, you know, at the time, the average car is probably in the tens. Like, you add that up over the course of the day, it just takes longer to complete the event. Correct. And when you want to stick to that racer-friendly schedule of weekdays not starting till three or four in the afternoon, you know, you don't want to tear into people's beach time or, you know, shopping or whatever. Uh, you know, they always, I think there was always a, an attention to keeping that event racer-friendly. You know, you wanted the families to come. You, you wanted uh, things like that. So, so you know, that, that, that was another memory. Um, it, it's interesting that guys like Danny Bastianelli and, and Randy Folk always seem to surface to the top when you're talking about what's your craziest memory. Because another one that I remember <laughs> a, few, uh, a few years later, quite the opposite of the Butler Buster, Randy shows up with what was essentially a pro-stock Corvette. A tube chassis car, probably an eight-second car at a time when there were very few dragsters clutch car with a Lenko, and uh, it was really, it was a car that was built by his brother Ron, really a, a fantastic car, but Randy struggled with it. He couldn't cut a light. He finally said, you know, I'm, I'm going to switch cars midweek. Well, I remember he got into a, uh, a discussion with Dennis Fitz, who, I don't know if you're familiar with Dennis, but he, he was one of the early stars. He won the $40,000 race in Bowling Green in a Lenko Monza. I mean, this was essentially a pro stock car that he bracket raced. He was kind of the, the preeminent stick shift driver of the time. And Dennis basically went up to Randy and said, there isn't nothing wrong with that race car. It's all you and I could prove it. Well, the two of them went back and forth for a couple of days. And finally, uh, I want to say it was a hundred dollar bet. It, it, it might've been $20, I don't know. But it was basically, Dennis, you get in the car, you make one run, and if you're better than I think 30 on the tree, you you win the bet. And uh, amazingly, they got the management to go along with it to put a guy in this car, strap him in. Uh, this was long before you know your street outlaws. Everybody crowded the starting line, but for this, everybody crowded the starting line. Um, Dennis gets in this thing, and hey, it's not his car, so why not do a savage 400 foot burnout? Just melt the tires off it, bag it up, stage it put it on the wood and um, I believe his light was somewhere in the twenties. So he won the bet. And, uh, you know, R Randy ultimately had to admit defeat that, that there was nothing wrong with the car. It could be competitive. Um, but <laughs> I, I, I just remember th things like that of 
like one of those moments like you're not going to see that anywhere else you know oh, and for, for multiple reasons like number yeah. one it's it's not often that you get the best of Andy folk right well that too yeah <laughs> <laughs> But, but I think Randy ultimately ended up, uh, you know, obviously when, when you look at the results of that event, which I have here, the Folk family is, is written m many, many times as points champions and individual event winners. Um, you know, they, they are as much a part of the lore of that event as anyone. But, um, you know, it was just things like that. And, you know, again, you've got massive amounts of downtime between rounds. So it's natural that a poker game or two are going to flare up. You know, when guys like Anthony Bertazzi shows up, you know, Anthony had, uh, Anthony basically had a van that he traveled with where they cooked out of. So there was always food going. Anthony had a full-size craps table that was set up pretty much 24 seven. Anytime there was downtime, you were going to see a game breakout. Um, you know, they might've only been racing for 5,000 or 7,500 a day, but usually that's where the real money changed hands. I, I think there, there, there were fortunes much greater than that won or lost over the course of the week. Um, you know, and again, not, none of that was discouraged. And I think as long as you weren't bothering anybody, uh, you, you were pretty much free to do what you wanted down there. Was the, uh, was the poker game always in the, in the control tower or did it migrate up there in later years? It, it, was, wherever, uh, it, it was wherever it was convenient to have one. Um, you know, obviously, nobody had motorhomes then. Very few people had enclosed trailers. It wasn't that. But the, the layout of Moroso being a road course, you had a, a tower down towards the finish line that was actually used by SCCA for their timing and scoring. Well, they ultimately, Moroso said, here, here's the keys, lock up when you're done. So we had access to that and it was air conditioning and you could bring a cooler and it had a nice big countertop. So uh, it was not uncommon for 20 or 30 people to be in there. So the wee hours of the morning, um, you know, I can remember a couple times leaving the track. You know, again, we didn't camp. You, you hiked it 20 miles back to uh, the Holiday Inn. I can remember several times going back there and watching the sun come up over, over the Atlantic ocean. Um, you know, and then you, you'd go get a few hours sleep, come back to the track and repeat it all over again. Yeah, no, that, uh, the road course timing tower, that's, uh, that's where the game was by the time that I started going. So that, that seems like it rang true for years and years. Yeah. What you, you mentioned Kenny Underwood, mm -hmm. is that the most, heroic or dominating performance and you mentioned Craig Spell as well like what else stands out for you over the history of the other five days a yeah, single week yeah. you know somebody's running away with it well I, I um I also had a chance to talk to Troy Williams Jr. and Troy is a three-time overall champion um and and he uh you know he talked about 1998 which was the year that he won he won the million so he won the you know and of course this was obviously you know 20 years after, you know, Moroso was long established as, as the premier event by then, but in whatever it was, September, October, he wins the million, you know, six-figure payday, but then goes down to Moroso and wins the overall, and, and he said that, and it was his first, he said that was the equivalent or maybe even better, it was something that he'd look forward to his whole life, you know, growing up in Florida, Troy was there as a kid watching his father race, and then, you know, I think he, he said that uh, 91 or 92, he went down there with his Camaro, an 11-0 car, uh, you know, where he could be competitive. And then, you know, several years later, wins it. But, but he had, uh, um, you know, a year where he won the points in a landslide. So, you know, I remember that as just being, again, that, that was kind of a little bit of his coming out. Um, you know, same thing for the Richardsons. The Richardsons kind of, you know, had this great reputation. Hey, there's these two brothers out of Texas that are really good, good. when they showed up. Uh, you know, they, they proved that it, it, it wasn't just, it wasn't just talk. Um, you know, and I think to, to, to win a day down there, to, to win an overall, it, it made your reputation. You know, you, the, the following year when you showed up at your local track or the 10 tuck or any of the other events, you got, I think the maximum amount of respect where it's like that guy won Moroso. Yeah. Oh, actually, I got a fun story. I think it, I think it's from the 98 season when, uh, when, when Troy won the, the points championship. And I've actually heard this story from two unique vantage points, both from Troy's and from Jeff Strickland's. Mm -hmm. But I, if that's the year, you've got the results in front of you. Did Don Strickland but, beat Troy in the final one day in 98? Or was that another uh, year? Let's see. Uh, Don Strickland Thursday did indeed beat Troy uh, the second day. Yes. Okay. And that's the year that Troy won the points? Yeah. So, yeah, because Troy came back and won uh, 
Uh, yeah, he was runner-up that day, and then uh, – actually, I believe that's all he did was uh, – I think was, that was his only final of the week. Yeah, there, right? yeah it was. He, he did not win. Um, so it was one of his later ones that he won uh, a couple days in that. So Troy is driving for Ed Richardson with the, the Mullis house cars, right? Mm -hmm. And yep. this is after the million, obviously. And somewhere along the way, I don't know if it was more Ed's idea, more Troy's idea, or a, or a, a mutual decision, but they had essentially elected like, hey, we're doing really good. We got this thing handled. We're, we're not going to split, right? Mm -hmm. So roll into the final in Moroso against Don Strickland. Mm -hmm. And I think... <laughs> I think I think maybe Ed or someone was speaking for Troy because the way Troy tells the story, like he was strapping into the car, mm -hmm. and Papa Strick had just been on this run of ridiculous runs. You know, I mean, was yeah. whatever the number was, say, 007 to ten on the tree. You know, four or five rounds in a row. Mm -hmm. And again, I've heard the story from Troy's perspective and from Don's son Jeff Strickland's perspective, and they say, "No, we're not going to split at all." And Troy, from inside the car, hears Don Strickland from beside or inside his car go, that boy don't think I'd whoop him. Right? Like, <laughs> you can picture Don Strickland saying that, right? Quite easily. <laughs> and then I hear Jeff's perspective of the story. He said, I, he said, I just kind of step back. I don't really know what to do. And Don straps, you know, pops gets down in the car. And I just watch him with the old, you know, the thumb wheel digital lay box. I watch him pull five thousandths out, and I'm like, "Oh my God!" And he's, you know, Jeff just walks off, and then there was some epic run. I mean, Troy's like double O something, take double O something, and Papa Strix five total or something. You know, almost exactly what he set up to be on the tree, right? So, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the, the other story that I remember from the early days uh, when you know. Uh, by the, by, so by the late 80s, they had actually even tried for a couple of years a pre-entry system to try to manage the car count. Um, that didn't go over well because I think you had racers that said, look forward to this the entire year, didn't want to get locked out. You know, it's a little bit of a situation you see right now with some of Pete and Kyle's races where, you know, obviously it wasn't online entering, but, you know, people who, hey, I really want to go, um, don't lock me out. But, but once you got to, to 400 cars, you had three, four hours between your, uh, you know, your first round and potentially your second. And I, I may have told this story on here before, or I know I told it recently, um, two guys, two local Florida guys, Jim Carlton and Steve Tiona went, ran the first round fairly early in the round, both won, decided, you know what, we've got four hours at least, let's go to town, let's go have a nice dinner, went in, went to Outback, had a steak, came back, see that there's about 40, 50 cars in line, perfect go jump in the back of the line. They both get the cars ready, go up there, run. And I know one of them won, one of them lost. And then they get back to the pits and you hear, all right, racers, we're ready for second round. Come on up. So, so, they, actually, they, they, so they actually ran the first round twice. And uh, I, I remember it because I was in the tower. They both went up there, explained it to Lex Dudas. And Lex said, look, there's not really much I can do here. You know, you lost, you're out. And as far as, you know, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not just going to admit whoever won, I think it was Jim Carlton. I'm not just going to advance you to the third round. You know, it's your own fault. You did this. The guy you ran was probably going to run somebody anyway. So, you know, I feel bad for him, but um, so basically, you know, if had Carlton won that day, he might've been the first uh, 10 round winner, you know, by default. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> 10 round winner to no buyback race. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, you know, it were things like that. And of course, you know, you, you would hear about, uh, just cr crazy things like that. Cause obviously a track like that news travels fast and, um, you know, it, it, it was really a, 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 a wonderful time. And, you know, there's still, it, it's, those days aren't gone forever. You know, I look at the atmosphere at some of the big races today, you go to any of the millions and, you know, it's the next generation, maybe even two generations removed from the early thing of kids, you know they're having a good time. They're doing crazy things. They're, they have kind of the same uh, irreverent attitude that I think helps make a successful bracket racer. Um, you still see a lot of it today. It's just, it, it's the kids and the grandkids of the people that, you know, that I grew up with watching, you know, the, the early heroes of Moroso. Yeah, no, it's the, the stories specifically seeming to be centered around that event are just epic and, and all timers. I'll, I'll take one more from, uh, again, a little bit more modern day. This is probably mid-2000s. Um, but part of, the, part of the allure once I started going to Moroso was 
um, the the betting in the stands. There's a group of guys from like Maryland, Washington, D.C. area, Shoemaker and his gang, right? That would always come down in the and the, the action in the stands was as, as good as the action on the track. And there were several times I would venture up that way after an early defeat and just have a ball, right? Mm-hmm. And the, but the the money that changed hands was incredible. But once you got to know the guys, like it was a really lively group, but it was yes. a lot of fun, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So we are. Uh, I think this was in the in the day where they would do a ten grander in the morning and then like a, a an eighth mile five grander to finish up again, probably mid to late two thousands. Mm-hmm. And I, my man Jason Lynch is is rolling through the five grander, and I'm sitting in the stands betting well. In the semifinals, Lynch just completely goes Lynch on him for no apparent reason and just lights up. Now, granted, he's the first pair out, and the track's been sitting for 20 minutes or something like that. He does a burnout, no kidding. I mean, tires still lit up as he, as he crosses the eighth-mile finish line. I mean, the longest burnout you ever see, and then backs up at 100 miles an hour, stages, wins the round. And the stands are going completely nuts, right? <laughs> so now we're laying bets on the length of the burnout in the final. You know, this is going to be way better. And, uh, and then just typical true-to-form Lynch in the final doesn't even cross the starting line in the burnout. Just, like, knocks the rocks off the tires and <laughs> stages. Everybody's completely disappointed. He ends up losing the final. And then the, the best part of the story for me is I get up the next morning, and Lynch, who's never the first guy out of bed, right? Mm-hmm. I, I get up the next morning and walk outside and there's Jason with the valve covers off working. I'm like, man, what is going on? And he's just got this ear to ear. And he goes, man, can you believe all that nonsense? Only broke two valve springs. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now, now, funny story about the gambling, you know, back in the early days, you know, remember in, you know, in 82 that, well, when Dick Moroso bought it, he was pretty quick to install concrete balls, scoreboards, which were a fairly new thing at the time. But the early timing systems, they did not factor in a breakout. The first one across the finish line, the wind light came on. So you had to rely on the announcer to know who won. So really, it was the betting in the stands was who would who lit the wind light, not who was coming back for the next round. Um, it's yeah. giving the guy that holds the most. On the that, yeah. First. Oh, 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 yeah. If, if, if the Cummins family had been around, then you'd have been golden, right? <laughs> but but that that was you know when you think about technology of no internet no cell phones you know you know just all the things and, and drag racing technology of a primitive timing system you know i think we've talked you know i do have a complete list of winners and runners up i do not have much in the way of results because uh the early um it wasn't even a CompuLink or, or an AccuTime. it was actually a tsi timing system it, it came on a roll of paper like you would get like a grocery store receipt and you know, these things, even when you save them, it was just car numbers and, and numbers. And after six months, the sun would get to them. They'd fade. You couldn't read anything. Uh, so short of transcribing all that, the, the, the early days of, of those bracket races, as far as numbers are, you know, unless it was printed in a magazine somewhere, they are lost forever. Um, but again, you know, that, that was some of the things you, you had to, you know, you had to listen to the announcer to find out who won. You couldn't just look at the scoreboard. Well, I suppose the scoreboards would tell you the, if you did the math really quick, it would show you the dial in and the, but uh, the, the light on top was only, uh, only to show you who crossed the finish line first. First to finish. The, uh, even the, the, some of the TSI systems, you see some today, uh, Music City's like this, like they've got like four different lights on the scoreboards. It's confusing because there's a first to finish light, there's a win light, there's a breakout light, there's a red light, there's all kind of stuff going yeah. on down there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, they've complicated it more than they could. You know, a, a few other things you talk about, um, again, just back to the importance of this race. Jed Coughlin Jr., you know, a guy who has five world championships in pro stock, and he will tell you that one of the trophies he values the most, you know, equal to the, any of those pro stock championships, is his Moroso five-day overall win. Um, you know, again, that's, you know, we, we, we've marveled at Jeg, the fact that he can be inactive bracket racing for long periods, come back and still make an impact. But, uh, you know, he, for, for years, he would always find time in his schedule to go down there. Um, I think it was 2003, which would have been the, uh, uh, the 20th anniversary, went down there, won. Uh, they, they had a special invitational race for all the previous champions. Wins that, wins the first day, wins the second day, um, but not the second day, won the fourth day. And uh, 
of course, won the overall points. So that that's you know that may be one of the most dominant performances uh, you, you'll ever see down there. You know, it's not anybody I, was, I can think that has come home with four trophies. Yeah, I was there for that. Uh, that was really really impressive. It's one of the most dominant stretches I've seen in person. And I was there the year I believe it was '07 that Trojans Jr. won a, a, another uh, mm -hmm. weekend points championship and ran rough shot over that. I think that that one was really rain hampered. I want to say they only got three or four days in and he yeah. won two or three yeah. of them. I mean, or was in two or three finals. He was yep. really impressive that week. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, another interesting thing, uh, watching last week, um, a couple of weeks with, uh, Jeff Ledford winning, uh, or being the final, of the big race there. Um, and actually I thought it was interesting that, uh, Jeff's quotes, if you watch the live feed, Said he said my whole life I've been waiting to race for a million dollars, and I don't believe I finally get a chance to do it. Well, if you go back to the uh, the early '80s, Jeff Ledford was uh, um, the overall points champion, I believe, in '88. You know, and and that was you know a probably one of the first big notches on on you know on his resume, and and obviously his family a lot to do with perpetuating big money bracket racing with the twenty grand later, the fifty thousand dollar race that's still you know, as we've discussed, probably the longest running continuous uh, big money bracket race in the country. And, you know, certainly they helped build this as much as anyone. Sure. That was the, the Ledford in the Calais, correct? It, it was. Yeah. The, uh, it was, it actually had previously been a comp car, I believe, um, out, out of division three. So, you know, and, and he was, I, I'm going to say uh, just a teenager at that point, you know, I think he was 19, 20 years old, maybe. Right. Yeah. That, that was 1985. So, uh, we're talking quite a while ago. Yeah, Jeff Ledford does not seem old enough to have had success in 1985. You're right. 100%. And that family, Jeff and Mike, both have had tremendous success, at least along the Winter Series. I don't know about at Moroso specifically, but I remember in the years that I was going down there, Mike having a lot of success in Bradenton specifically. So mm -hmm. Good stuff. Um, any other tips, notes before we wrap this up? Oh, just, you know, we, we could probably go on for, 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 for days with some of this. Um, you know, I, I just know for me personally, going to that event as much as any other, you know, I look forward to things like the Gator Nationals, so that, but, but the Moroso five-day was like Christmas. You know, I, I made a, a, a promise that I, you know, would never, you know, even, even after I moved to California the first few years, would go there every year religiously, you know, made a deal with the track. I'd come in there, cover it shoot photos for them and uh, just enjoyed it so much and, and, you know, went for as long as I could. I think, I think I made 25 or 26 straight. And then it just, you know, sadly, after we lost Dick Moroso, um, that event was not what it used to be. You know, the track was ultimately sold, reconfigured. Uh, the, the mystique of, of that hotel, the Holiday Inn went away when people started camping at the track, you know, which was fine. You know, it, you, you can find all the animals to the zoo at that point <laughs> if you want. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, you, you get a little older and, and some of the things like, you know, staying up all night playing cards maybe, maybe isn't your number one priority. Um, but uh, that, you know, and, and again, you know, Dick Moroso's story to follow up, you know, it, it is tragic. You know, Dick lost his son. Rob, in the early 90s, you know, he was a rising star in NASCAR, was killed in a car accident. And that, as you would imagine, affected him deeply. You know, there were years he didn't show up when he was there. You know, he, he was not he was not the Dick Moroso that people remembered. But years later, he, he sort of, you know, managed to, to, to deal with that grief. And the last few years before he got sick with cancer and ultimately passed, he came back and there was a little bit of a renaissance of like, hey, the good old days are back. Here's Dick. You know, I think it was important to him because, as I said, those were his people. And he really, I think, cherished the times that uh, he got to spend with the bracket racing crowd. And, uh, you know, that, that, that was really a, a mutually uh, beneficial relationship where Dick loved the bracket racers and they loved him back. And, um, you know, again, a big part of why that event worked. You know, you had a promoter, a track operator there who really cared. Yeah, no question. And, and that was in large part, the mystique of this event was, was rooted in Dick and what he did. Yeah. And, and his generosity, you know, it, it started out as a $5,000 race, but I think after about year three, he just came out and looked at the, the line of cars out the gate waiting to get in and said, you know what, I'm going to pay six grand to win every day this year. You know, he just, and a thousand dollars doesn't seem like much. It's kind of a token thing, but um, you know, he just, that, that was Dick just, you know, he knew he could tell right away the event was going to be successful. Why not spread the wealth around? 
do this. You know, one year he just off the cuff, he, 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 I remember he asked me for, uh, he said, could you have a way of telling, can you look at the points and tell me how many guys have been here every day and haven't won around? And that's where the duck race came from, where if you went, you know, all five days didn't win around, you had this free race that I think paid 500 to win, you know, again, not much, but, but just a small token of appreciation for, for the guys that went down there and, and supported him. Uh, we got Steve Cisco weighing in from with a comment. He says Kevin used to go to Moroso just for a poker game. Any any truth to that? It, it, a lot of well, it wasn't just for that, but if one happened to break out, um, yeah, it, it uh, you know it, it was fun. I mean, I it, I always liked playing cards. I, I grew up and and to go down there. You know, the sad thing is I never really had the budget to do it. So cer certainly not the budget that Steve Cisco has these days. Um, in fact, for God's sake, Steve, stay out of Vegas. Lock yourself in your house for a while. Invest that money wisely. <laughs> Don't, but, um, but yeah, it's, it, you know, some of the friendships that I've had to this day are people that we went down there, people like Tom Stalba, Steve Sisko, John Labuse, people like that, that, you know, th th these were people we had probably the most fun I've ever had in my life to go down there and uh, just hang and, and do what racers do. It, it was a lot of fun, really a magical time. Oh, good stuff. K-Mac, as always, thank you for doing this. Uh, this, like I said, is one that I've looked forward to, and it, and it lived up to the billing for me. This, is, this has been a lot of fun. Um, those of you watching and listening, whether it's uh, live on the This Is Bracket Racing Facebook page or on the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast feed, thank you for listening to this show. Thank you for, uh, for being with us you know, for the better part of the last three months as we've kind of uh, delved into these Way Back Wednesday uh, episodes. It's been a lot of fun. I think that this is essentially going to be the last for this format, at least in the uh, in the immediate future. As we mentioned, Kevin's back to work. Most of you are back to work as well. Um, so so that that diminishes the impact to some extent. But as always, Kevin's going to be a big part of what we do as a as a guest on the podcast. We do have plans. We've talked about doing something similar to what we did today as kind of a, a history of the million dollar race, but that'll probably be more fitting as the million dollar race is a little bit closer on the calendar this year, the original mm -hmm. million. So look forward to that. And uh, again, I think Kevin will be a, a regular guest on the podcast in the months to come. Yeah. yeah I'd, I'd like to see us do, uh, you know, some, some analysis and uh, whatnot of, of, you know, current happenings in bracket racing. Sure. There's so much going on, you know, this is, you know, you look at what happened last week and, and, that was amazing. You know, honestly, I didn't think even, even as little as maybe a year and a half ago, the thought of a winner actually racing for a million dollars, call me one of the people that might've been a little bit skeptical. I mean, I knew, I knew after the success of the half million last year, you thought it was feasible, but you know, you and I wondered last week, are they really going to get the cars? Can this really happen? And I'll be damned if they didn't, didn't just do it, but they knocked it out of the park. and Absolutely. On every level. Yeah. You know, and, and I know you're watching Steve Cisco. 20, 30 years from now, people will still be saying, were you there in 2020 when that guy in that Nova, oh, my God, the thing was on the bumper? Trust me, your, your grandkids will hear about this weekend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then just added to the lore. And then he came back the next day and a whole different car. One hundred grand, right? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so. Good stuff. Thank you again, Kevin. Thank you guys for watching and listening. And um, I think by and large, most of us are, are back to racing. So uh, best of luck and safe travels this weekend. Kevin's covering racing on the professional level. So that's fun. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> yep. Sounds good. Right. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Kevin. Bye. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer led by knowledgeable professionals. Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors, and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is, at each event, there are 100-plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling 
of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers. That's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.